Thank you for joining us for the culmination of this special episode of Straight from the CPA's Mouth featuring Robert Andrews, CPA CMA. In case you weren't aware, this is the final segment of a three-part episode, and if you haven't done so already, I encourage you to listen to parts one and two. My name is Sharon Ryder from CP Alberta, and I'll be your host for today's discussion on racism, equity, and representation with Robert Andrews, CPA CMA, who joins us via Zoom. Robert is the Executive Director for the Aboriginal Financial Officers Association of Alberta and an Assistant Professor in the Faculty of Business at Athabasca University. He is a passionate mentor, educator, and leader who has worked to build stronger ties between the CPA profession and Alberta's Indigenous students. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that CPA Alberta resides and serves on traditional and ancestral territories of many Indigenous First Nations and Inuit people. I'm hosting from Mokinstis or Calgary, which is situated on Treaty 7 territory. As an organization, we are committed to building a profession where Indigenous people and their voices and experiences are heard, valued, respected, and celebrated. Welcome back to Straight from the CPA's Mouth, Robert. Did you hear that head office is implementing new diversity and inclusion? Women 10% of C-suite positions at Canada's 100 companies need to be more socially responsible. Big data represents a potential windfall of $30 billion for Canada. Do a comprehensive review of its tax system. 70% of Albertans say the economy is too dependent on oil and gas. Filter out the noise. Hear it straight from the CPA's mouth. So, Robert, I'd love to talk to you about uh, just racism in general um, and the pervasiveness of it. About your experience, um, you know, CPA profession. I've been thinking a lot about this Audrey Lord quote, um, and I forgot what it's written in. But Audrey Lord, who's a great, uh, you know, thinker, author, activist, who was fantastic. Really recommend that too. All who've never heard of her, but there's this quote she talks where she talks about silence. And she, this is when she was battling cancer. And she said, I was going to die, if not sooner than later, whether or not I had ever spoken myself. My silence had not protected me. Your silence will not protect you. While we wait in silence for that final luxury of fearlessness, the weight of that silence will choke us. And I thought about that a lot in the past year as you know, people were talking about racism and the power of silence. I, I thought about it a lot when many of my Asian uh, friends, uh, you know, in the past few weeks have talked about, you know, how silence has choked their community of being the model minority and not speaking about their experiences. And so I think that's a really good kind of setup when I think about in my mind of talking about, you know, the pervasiveness of racism, because many people, I think, who have not experienced it kind of think of it as, you know, yeah, it kind of happens, maybe not here. It's maybe racism is tied to residential schools only or slavery only. And while all of us, you know, who have experienced it are suffering in silence, I think many times, but we don't benefit from that silence. So maybe we can, you know, kind of explore that and not be silent and talk about the pervasiveness of racism. Yeah, and that is such a critical question that, that we're probably so guilty of is, is not seeing it, not speaking up about it, not recognizing it, not sharing these experiences for probably all the wrong reasons. And, and so societally we're in a we're in a in a very, very challenging place 
in terms of addressing all of this pre-existing harm and, and recognizing how it still continues to hurt. And, and that's true of so many of these groups that we're talking about in Black Lives, Indigenous Lives Matter, now Asian lives uh, included because of some of the issues that have spread from our, our, our recent COVID experiences. So, so this, this idea of, of how pervasive is, is racism? Well, as an Indigenous person, in a normal context where I'm interacting with people normally, i.e. pre-COVID, um, it's not only daily, it, it's hourly. And that would be shocking to so many people, but it, it's just there, it's a constant. It's, it's things you overhear. Um, it, it's attitudes you see. It's expressions of people in the media. It's things colleagues might say. It's jokes that are, oh, I can joke like this with you because we're good friends and you can't. You don't recognize the hurt. So Sharon, I'm hoping you, you share some of your experiences too. In the COVID world, because I thought about this, when did I experience racism? And truly, even in the, in the COVID world with limited interactions, it's a daily occurrence. And I, I wanna share a couple of experiences and then share some experiences that were shared with me directly. So this issue is, is very much alive in very many institutions. And I was walking down the street and I came across, this is relatively recently, like within the last two years, I came across an unconscious man in the street and I, I quickly looked to make sure he was breathing and he was, but clearly he was in some kind of distress. So I called 911 and explained that, you know, I'm walking down the street and I came across this man and he's, he's unconscious and it, it doesn't look right. It says position is clearly uncomfortable as though he collapsed. So he wasn't just sleeping. And the first question that came out of the 911 operator's mouth after they got my name and phone number was, are they an Indian person? Are they a First Nation person? And I was stunned and enraged and furious that somehow in our healthcare professionals, they would make a discrimination about the nature of this person, the quality of life and the kind of person they were and determine based on that, whether they should provide services. I went in for my COVID shot and because of my high risk status as part of the, the indigenous population, I received a COVID shot on my nation, the blood tribe, Southern Alberta. And I had my mother with me who at the same time got her COVID shot. My mother actually got quite ill from the, the shot. She got very nauseated. So I phoned our health services and said, can I get the second shot in Calgary? And was told, yes, I could. So I went down to the center to get the second shot with my mother. And when I explained to them that this was our second shot, they told me, no, it's not. And I told them, well, you know, I got it on the blood tribe. No, you didn't. And, and I was stunned 
And somehow the disclosure that I was First Nation meant somehow that what I was saying was not correct, it was not truthful, it wasn't valid. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I can assure you I did. I'm scared of needles and I remember getting needles. And the woman I was dealing with, who was a manager, she she looked angry and she said, they did it wrong. And I looked and I said, by they do you mean the blood tribe professionals, the blood tribe health professionals? And she just looked away. And later she remarked on, on my culture. So it, it's these things that, that are just daily occurrences and, and they're, they're more subtle. And, and oftentimes they're not subtle at all. They're, they are jokes, they're remarks, they're hateful comments. Um, they're incidents in the newspaper with people commenting on it. They're remarks made by strangers that you overhear. But the, the pervasiveness is daily, hourly. And so, Sharon, I, I, I want to get a sense of your experiences of, of the pervasiveness as well. You also know and have noted how, um, how many. I mean, if we, if we all c- collected our, our stories and experiences of racism, like there wouldn't be enough pages in the world to fill those up. I think something that a lot of people don't necessarily realize who've never experienced it is how early um, those of us who are racialized experience racism. You know, when you think of little children, right? At a very young age, I think my earliest memory I remember is a, I love English, I love writing, you know, books. I've just always been such a big reader since I was young. That was something very instilled in our home when I was growing up. And so I was quite gifted as a writer from a very young age. And I remember writing my first like story or essay or whatever we had to do. I think it was grade three, I want to say. And I remember the teacher pulling me aside. I was the only Black student in my class, which is very common for many Black students in Canada and the U.S. in certain areas. And I remember my teacher pulling me aside and starting to ask me, oh, did you write this? And, you know, I was very excited as... um, an eight, nine-year-old, yes, I wrote it, you know, I was very excited, and she kept asking me questions, and I realized that she didn't think I had written my own story. I had gotten an A on it, as some of my friends also had, and I was the only one who was pulled aside to ask, did you write this, you know, asking me specific questions, and I went home, you know, told my parents, and realized that the reason why she was asking me that, of course, is because she didn't believe that a little Black girl could write an A-plus story in her class. And that was my earliest memory. And so even when you talked about, you know, students in the post-secondary, I think it starts usually very early in the school setting and continues throughout your whole educational experience where your intelligence is questioned, your abilities are questioned um, because of your identity and who you are. And so, yeah, that's, that's sort of the first thing that popped into my mind as we were talking about this. And Sharon, like people will hear that and say you're a one-off, but it's not. It happens all the time. Like they share that same story. One of our students, she, she entered into a, a, a quite a prestigious BCom 
And she worked very, very hard to, you know, to realize her dreams, to get into this program. And she was told by her peers, she, she was a, an AA plus student. She was told by her peers that she was only here because the school was accommodating Indigenous learners. And in that moment, it, it, it just it went right to her core. And, and, you know, she's a young adult. And it, it says, you're not good. You're not as good as us. And the only reason you're here is because they let someone in of a lower quality. We had another, because we're doing some work with, with CPA Canada on these issues. We had another learner that told exactly the same story. She was questioned by her teacher that was shocked that she was one of the top students. And that she just couldn't understand how this younger First Nation woman could be one of the top students. And exactly what you're talking about. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. I, I didn't want to go back to my distant history, but it starts with day one. We weren't allowed to play with the other kids in our community because the words were, we were the dirty little Indians. So hurtful, so harmful. And then it occurs daily, hourly. I, I want to share some other ones just to, to get people to appreciate what it looks like. Mm. We had a, a fellow installing a lock at our learning center and we were talking about it. He didn't recognize I was a Blackfoot and I didn't recognize he was Cree. And we started talking about, you know, our, our commonalities when we realized we we're both First Nation. And, you know, he was really happy with the work we were doing and thought it was really, really good. And somehow we remarked on, on some of these challenges we experienced. And he had talked about recently his, his um, I think it was his son fell off a, a, his bike. He was learning to ride a bike. He fell off and he broke his arm. And he took him to the hospital and, and they treated him quickly and, and they got his arm set in a cast and everything was, was great and they're ready to, to leave. And he remarked he was Cree. And at that moment, just before that, they were ready to, to let him go. But the son was treated and he had a cast. And as soon as he said that, they said, well, just a moment. They came back with, with someone senior and they said, we just want to ask a couple more questions they took him to one of the offices and they held him and they held him until a social worker came to spend another hour inquiring of the children and of the mother and of the father if there was any domestic abuse in the family and that if the broken arm was caused by abuse and not a child falling off a bike the only difference there was he disclosed he was indigenous and and this is not distant this is happening daily this happens daily in our communities i mean when we're training because of facebook and all our interconnections we hear rapidly of of our community members being followed in stores and accused of theft as they walk out it's it's these constant constant episodes that are these small wounds that people, as you say, that aren't of a, of, a, of a group that has experienced this, they simply can't believe it. They can't conceive it. But I think we really have to explain to, to the listeners that this happens daily, hourly. And these experiences are so common. Like you said, we, would, we don't have enough space to write our stories because there's so many. Yes, definitely. And I think we have these instances of in schools, you know, in hospitals, and then of course, you know, in, in the workplace so many times, it's all prevalent there. 
you know, I have family members who a lot of times I'm originally from Zimbabwe. That's where I was born, but grew up in North America. And a lot of immigrants have their traditional name in their own language. And they also have a English name. And so my name is Sharon, but my non-English name is Rutendo. It means we are grateful in my language, which is Shona. And so a lot of my cousins growing up, you know, went by their non-English name. And many of them, when, you know, moved to North America, we realized in the last few years, many of them applying for jobs, noticed that, hey, when they use their non-English names, they did not get uh, acceptances or interviews. I have a cousin right now who's in uh, doing her residency program in the States, and her name is Rumi Zai, but her other name is Lucy. And she realized very quickly on her med school applications that as soon as she started using the name Lucy, she's very gifted. The acceptances, the invitations for interviews started rolling in. And so I think even on that professional sense in the workplace, you see those things, these assumptions that are made of people because of what, whatever their identity is. Yeah, absolutely. And and you think about where, where could that come from? How would, how would your name distinguish your, your merit? It's right back to that notion of the meritocracy. How, how would your name suggest you're less capable than all these other applicants? It is fundamentally based on these beliefs, assumptions, racist underpinnings. Mm-hmm. Another example, you know, that came to mind, indigenous names are, are obviously they're in Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, but they also have, have an English translation and the mockery of those names. So, you know, my family name is Bull Shields and I get openly mocked when I share that name and others mock the names of, of these indigenous people. And it's like, well, actually they're, well, one, they're, they're, they're based on spiritual, cultural beliefs, experiences. They actually have profound meaning. And, and the mockery of these names is very hurtful. It's very, very hurtful. And where would the view come from that it's okay to mock someone's name, which is so closely associated with their personality, with their identity, with their history, with their community belonging? And again, these, these things are, are just daily, regular occurrences. Yes, definitely. I'm wondering if, as you are mentoring students and working with them, are they concerned with these topics around racism in the profession? Is this some of the questions or things that you explore of how they can navigate it? I'm sure they come to you or ask questions, advice, or whatever it is. Is Are these conversations that are even happening in those spaces as you mentor and educate yeah, they are. They certainly are. And that's this is one of the strengths of our program. And again, there's a sad history there because our community through the residential schools was taught to be ashamed of who we are. This was a, the whole effort of the residential schools was to take the Indian out of the Indian child, to make them not who they were. And they did that through shame in part. They did that through disallowing practices such as speaking your language, practicing your cultures, um, wearing your hair in a particular style that represented your culture, but more than that, through humiliation. So my mother, my mother, who is and was a fluent Blackfoot speaker in the old language spoken by Blackfoot before contact, she spoke her language. And in the residential school, she was forced to strip, to put on a burlap sack and to stand at the front of the room to represent the savage she was. And it was the shame that the programs, the government, the agents of the government made these learners feel that has perpetuated through 
generations. My mother never taught us Blackfoot because she was made to feel ashamed of her culture. I don't speak my mother's language. Having said that, our learners come to us with this history. And so part of what we do is we help them appreciate how rich and powerful that, that culture is, that, that traditions, the knowledge, the knowledge that we've accumulated from time immemorial and how that stands the test of time and how it actually improves our society going forward. The role, and similarly in many other cultures, the elders, the older people are held in great esteem. And in the indigenous culture, the elders are revered. They're treated with, with special privilege and protections. And you, you look at the dominant non-indigenous cultures, and in so many cases, we just shuffle away our elderly people. We push them aside. There's so much that we can take from, from some of these other cultures. So just our treatment of the elders, our, our respect for the youth and concern for the youth, thinking forward, not, not just us, not just the next you know, pace cycle, but generations ahead about our decisions and the obligation, sense of responsibility that that leaves you with. That you're not just making a decision for you, you're making a decision for your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. There, there's this element in the culture. There's, I talk about restorative justice. This, this, so our, our, our legal system is based on the British system. Restorative justice is this new trend in, in legal thinking where you bring together the harm party and, and the one that does the harm and you help each other understand. And this is seen as, as this tremendous legal breakthrough in the treatment of these, let's call them crimes, this is an Indigenous concept. So our current legal system is taking liberally from Indigenous beliefs, in particular First Nation beliefs, and these are wonderful, powerful tools that are being used throughout the Indigenous system. Uh, Dalhousie University, when they had the challenges in the dental profession with those learners that crossed some boundaries that were clearly not acceptable, they looked at the harm that would occur in a punitive system, penal system. And the alternative was this idea of restorative justice, which had the effect of, of strengthening community, of helping each other. And this is Indigenous belief. So to answer your question, we remind people, our learners, of the richness, of the power, of the relevance of their teachings, of their traditions, of their history, and say, you're not equal, you have so much more to offer. You have all of these insights, all of this history, all of these perspectives that can help your community, help your organization. So we're not so much addressing the shame as reinvigorating that sense of tradition, culture, belief, community that pre-exists in these individuals from, from time immemorial through their lineage. Mm -hmm. I think that's very powerful. It Reminds me, and maybe this is this is something that I'm hopeful for, is I feel like right now a lot of us currently are, maybe I'll call it a burden, but there's a burden of representation that comes with often being the only one or the first or one of the few. And programs like the ones that you're talking about, you know, really instilling that pride, talking about the richness is that 
maybe future generations, I think my niece and my nephew, that they won't be burdened by that responsibility, but instead it won't be about representing, you know, the culture or the community, which they always will, but it'll be about representing themselves where it can just be about that specific person and who they are and them living authentically rather than being wrapped up in this, you know, multi-generational, you know, it, it's inescapable, but in a sense, I, I hope that there is that burden that they won't have to carry that on in that same way. Yeah, and when you speak of burden, we tend to refer to it as our sacred obligation. Mm. But it's the same thing as, as we have an obligation to move our community forward. And many of us in professions have taken on those roles to help. But all of us want to be at a place where we don't have to help. We can help each other yes. and address all the things we need to address, whatever ethnicity, culture, race, whatever grouping you come from, just to, to help and share as a community and be part of that larger network in a positive, empowering, encouraging way. So uh, absolutely. I, and then <laughs> frankly, when you speak of the burden, I, I come from my training. So so I, I teach three hours away from, from where I live. And I take that drive to readjust to re-normalize from my experiences in that classroom and half the time because of our community and the nature of our community and humor i laugh i laugh for three hours there's so much wonderful things so many funny things such a warm community but half the time i cry for three hours and it's processing all of these instances of injustice, all of these instances of harm, of occurrences of racism, of terrible tragedies, of, you know, to contextualize it a little bit, when I was training, it would break my heart when I heard that teenagers were committing suicide. And you'd hear it again, and, and it was a 14-year-old and then another time I would hear it again, but it wasn't a 14 year old, it was a 12 year old. And I it just, I, I think how can things be so bad, so hopeless that a 12 year old would take their life? And I heard it again and it was a 10 year old. And I looked at today's paper and there's a community where they had a seven year old attempt suicide. And for people that aren't exposed to this, they don't understand how hard it is, how hurtful it is, and how much work we have to do as a society, as a culture, as an institution, a profession, as individuals. As individuals, we, we do have, and, and Sharon, if we appreciate our roles, that burden that you feel you have is the burden we all should have to try to make things better. And even as a population of, of a privileged culture, you should share that burden equally. You should be part of developing the solution. You should be part of learning, understanding, helping in a way that genuinely helps. And like you said, sometimes the help isn't say to invite more people to the table. Sometimes it's to say, here's the table, here's the seats, here's the room, we're gonna leave. And you have the use of these tools, resources, 
as long as you need them. So I think it would help if we all appreciate that we all should share equal in these burdens. I, I had um, an academic tell me that this Indigenous stuff kind of doesn't matter. And my response was, if, if you walk on the lands that our Indigenous people walked on, if you live in communities where our Indigenous people hunted in, if you work in communities where Indigenous people prayed, this is part of what you need to understand. And you are part of these challenges. And you have no special privilege to say you don't need to be part of the solution. Going back to our experiences and how help becomes harm, I have to think in Black Lives Matter, that you have heard as much negative or more than positive. Yes, yes, for sure. I think that often when, especially when there's big movements, and maybe it's even more subliminal, I think there is the overt hurtful things, but I think there is the little hurtful things, I think. I shouldn't even say little because it's kind of death by a thousand cuts, right? I think it's more the immediate fad of like, oh, this is, interesting this is cool this is popular to talk about this and then the week is over and you know it's as if people forgotten but black people are still living in the reality of the situation right I think a lot of times when things make the news and I'm sure you can relate to it it becomes a learning moment for some people and for those of us who live the realities of being who we are every single day, it's not a learning moment. It, it's, it's that trauma. It's that, you know, reminder that you are the other or whatever it is. So it, it is quite difficult, I think, especially it's good, of course, for, you know, these issues to be front of mind and talked about, but often there comes, a, there's a price to be paid with it, right? Yeah, and, and you get these all lives matter. Mm-hmm. And, and, and those things are hurtful. And it trivializes all of those issues that you're trying to bring to the fore. One of the, the challenges that I had when I was asked to, to speak to CPA about this and why I wanted it done in a particular way is people of color, people indigenous, however you, you want to define them, When we're speaking to the dominant culture, the non-Indigenous culture in my case, or others, we spend 75% or more of the time trying to rationalize this actually occurs and trying to make people believe that this happens. And I really wanted to speak with someone that had those experiences and knew what I was talking about when I said this occurs hourly. You can turn your gaze anywhere and you, you find expressions of this. And for those that haven't experienced it, they don't appreciate that. And so in a 30-minute session, you spend 20 minutes trying to say, no, this is real. It happens. And rationalize your experience, which we, we don't need to do. We don't want to do that. We don't have to do that. We need to speak to people that understand and let other people. I completely agree. In this conversation, we've talked about a lot of things. And something I was thinking about, in addition to the general public, a lot of CPAs students, the podcast, different people. If nothing else, what do you hope to impart 
on people and listening about this and hearing our stories and what you shared about racism in not only in the profession, but in, in all these things, what do you hope to impart on them? So if I go back to my earlier comments as a starting point, when a very well-educated colleague says First Nation people are a waste of resources, they don't matter. The first point is as a group, as a collective, we have to say, no, they do matter. These people are important. When I phone 911, I'm not asked the question, is it an Indian person? So our starting point is that we all have value and we all have contributions, right? That's the starting point. But the next stage of that is to say, now we want to recognize all of your unique experiences, worldviews, cultures, context, beliefs to help make all of us better. We want to take and share our experiences. So you teach us. You as an Indigenous person help us address our challenges through your unique insights. Then we want to be in a place, as you mentioned, where we can just be ourselves, where we can be who we are and, and contribute in a way that reflects who we are authentically, in a way that reflects the richness of our experiences, the, the wealth and the wonder of our experiences, the good and the bad in, in helpful, constructive ways. I mean, that's a long-term goal. And I think we got a long ways to go before society yeah. gets <laughs> But I am hopeful. And before we, we do conclude, I did want to share an experience that, that spoke, I think, to this. So we have a special program with, with Athabasca University, and we teach our Indigenous learners content that was designed, at least, with Indigenous input. Many of the courses are written by Indigenous scholars, taught by Indigenous scholars. Some of them aren't, but we pick people, professors, that have an interest. And we bring two cultures together. And I usually sit in the room as, as the mentor and I, I watch the learning and I, I act as the interface between the learners and, and, and the, the academic. And I saw the richest exchange that could be a model of what we can do going forward. And we had our 20 Indigenous learners and we had a professor that came from an African country. I can't remember which, and I don't want to suggest and, and not be correct. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience because they shared their cultures and they giggled out loud when they had things in common. And they laughed and they connected with that commonality of experience. And they connected in a very, very real way. In the cases where they didn't have the commonality of experience and cultural beliefs, views, they shared it excitedly with a desire to learn. And they asked and engaged, tell me about, and it was two ways. The professor said to her, what do you do about this? And he would, oh, do you do this? Oh, that's so exciting. That's wonderful. And, and we would ask him, what did you do for fun as a child? And he told us some amazing stories of how they would climb trees and cut them down and ride the tree down. But we all laughed. We all giggled. And we thought, just what a wonderful exchange. And it was so genuine. 
And we built on the commonality, but we enriched our lives through the differences. And if we look to that as a model of what we could do, you can see how all of our lives would be better. If we focus on what we share similarly, and there's much, you know, Indigenous people, a lot of similarities with some of the African, a lot with the African communities. Actually, you see a lot of coherence spiritually, traditionally, you know, relationships with family members. Similarly, a lot with Asian communities. And, and so we look at all these linkages and say, we're so similar in these cases. We're actually a kind people. But then we look at those differences. And instead of making those differences weapons, we turn them into opportunities to collectively make our lives better. And that's kind of one of the paths I see going forward. And I hope people can appreciate the value of that in a real genuine way. Like this speaks to the idea of inclusion, but it's not just a word. It's a deeper understanding of, of all of the wonderful things we get sharing and the richness and the enhancement and the improvement in the quality of all of our lives through these kinds of initiatives. That's where I become hopeful. The other remark I wanted to make when you talked about what we're trying to do, we're an organization that teaches management, yet on our walls, we have pictures of children. And it speaks to the hope and the desire and the aspiration and our sacred obligation to improving the lives of these children. And we understand it's not the next generation, it might be the next generation, but we all have to be part of that connection. So I would encourage you to take up that obligation as no doubt you have, and we just have to keep moving forward. And yeah. we do ask those that aren't part of our communities to help us help ourselves, to reduce barriers so that we can get the skills we need to get to advance. We have to get those to say, Let's accept meritocracy, but let's not be veiled by our dominant culture. And let's really understand how far people have progressed. Mm -hmm, definitely. Are there any other, now you talked about, you know, your high, a high moment there. That was a beautiful story. Are there any other success stories or maybe like joy, joyful moments um, similar to the one you talked about that you, that you hold on to as you, in this long and difficult sort of work? Well, thankfully, the number of positives is more than the negatives. And I have so many rich, wonderful experiences that the, the range from the profound to the absurd. <laughs> um, we have in, in our teaching learners, we've adopted some curious customs, if you will. And one of them is to award a a crab cracker to some of our graduates. It's a long, complex story, but the, the joy that people get achieving and being recognized for their achievement is absolutely extraordinary. It's, it's one of the greatest privileges of being an educator is, is you see the, the skills that they develop and the confidence that they get. And you all of a sudden, you as an educator are woken to the benefit they're going to bring to their community. And as educators of accounting kinds of people, uh, it's true in accounting too. You, you look at the opportunity for these individuals and you say, they're, they're just going to be 
marvelous people that contribute to their communities that much more than they already do. So as an educator, I get to see that daily and it's, it's wonderful. It's tremendous to, to, and, and the sense of pride they have the, you know, I had one learner come to me and, and say, through her experiences, her children are coming forward and saying, you know, mom, I never thought about going to university, but now I do. And for a young indigenous child on a reserve that doesn't see these role models as often as they should, to be part of that, it's amazing. I mean, CPA has been very, very, very supportive and they've supported development of programs that help our learners. And frankly, they've done it in a, in a in my opinion, a very genuine way. And I say that with all sincerity. And it doesn't seem to be predicated on anything other than let's try to make things better, which mm-hmm. is I think, where we want to go. So yeah, CPA has contributed to course development that led to some of these programs where, where I get to, I guess, enjoy all the, the pleasure <laughs> associated with teaching. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Robert, for joining us for the final installment of our three-part episode on racism, equity, and representation in honor of National Indigenous History Month. Don't forget to subscribe to the Straight from the CPA's Mouth mailing list for exclusive content. And if you have ideas for future episodes or any feedback you'd like to share, email us at knowledgecenter at cpaalberta.ca or leave us a comment on social media. And finally, if you'd like to learn more about the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center, check us out online at cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. Straight from the CPA's mouth is brought to you by the CPA Education Foundation. The CPA Education Foundation is the charitable arm of the Alberta CPA profession, providing up to 1.2 million each year in support of business and accounting education in the province. This podcast is just one of many resource materials available through the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center. This virtual hub features Alberta CPAs sharing their unique perspective and vast expertise on topics and issues such as leadership, finance, entrepreneurship, and more. Visit cpaalberta.ca slash foundation for more information on the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center and to learn how Alberta CPAs inspire success.